Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And we have something to kind of celebrate today, which is it is Annie's due date. Well, when we're recording this. Emphasis on kind of celebrate because like we made it here. Right. That's right. a that's a plus. But also this little girl is very comfortable in her little home. So and how uncomfortable are you? Definitely ready. <laughs> well, hopefully by the time that this airs on Easter, we will have a new little baby to be celebrating. Speaking of which, happy Easter to those who celebrate. I wanted to keep today's episode a little bit more lighthearted. So instead of covering a true crime, we are going to be diving into Easter Island and the mystery that surrounds it. But as I did my research for what was meant to be a somewhat lighthearted historical episode, there are some theories of what happened on this island that truly make it perfect for a true crime podcast. I think what's fascinated people for so long about Easter Island is not necessarily the island itself, but the almost 900 large stone figures called Moa that have caused people to speculate, putting on their tin hats, and come up with their own reasoning for why these figures exist in the first place, who made them, how the heck were they made, and what was their purpose. Even doing the research for this episode led me down a couple rabbit holes myself. I was fully on board at points with some of the more odd theories around this island because it is really hard to not also tie it into other stone structures like the Egyptian pyramids and Stonehenge that truly make you pause and question, is what we are being told about these structures true? And is it even possible that people were able to build and make these structures with rudimentary tools thousands and thousands of years ago. I am so excited for this because it's been a while since we've done a conspiracy episode. The last one was Denver Airport. Well, I want to be clear before we dive into this episode that what we are discussing today is the theories of archaeologists and historians, but these are just theories based on their archaeologist findings and the passing down of oral history. And with any type of historical theory, I like to leave room that there is just so much that we don't know because we weren't there to witness it firsthand. According to an article for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Eastern Island, or Rapa Nui, is one of the most remote inhabited places in the world. It is over 1,000 miles away from the other Polynesian islands and over 2,000 miles away from South America. It is believed that a group of people from eastern Polynesia settled on Easter Island between 600 and 800 AD, but it wouldn't get the commonly known name of Easter Island until a European explorer named Jacob, forgive my pronunciation, I believe it's Rajaveen, probably not though, something along those lines. <laughs> We're going with it. He would spot the island on Easter Sunday in 1722. A lot is still unknown about this island and the people who settled there. But like I said at the beginning of the episode, obviously humans came to this island, but what happened to them? It's amazing to me that the Polynesian people were even able to find this tiny little island. Easter Island is about 11 miles long and 7 miles wide. And so to think that this group of Polynesian explorers set out in wooden canoes and found an island nearly 1,100 miles away from their homeland is truly wild. I was watching a documentary and they were explaining how these early explorers from all different cultures would obviously use the stars to navigate, but they would also watch the pattern of migratory birds and track what birds would stay close to inland so they would know like, oh, we must be close to land because we see this specific type of bird. 
But the other thing they like would- Like a seagull sure, or something. Yeah, that isn't going to go very far out. They're going to stay close to land. But the other thing that it's reported that these Polynesian tribes in particular would do was they were so in tune to the world and the environment around them that they would put their legs into the water outside of the boat and be able to detect the small undertow and the difference between the waves of waves that were crashing against a shore maybe a few miles away and coming back towards their boat, if that makes sense. Wow, miles offshore so they couldn't see the island. They would just put their feet in the water. Wow, that's amazing. Who knows if any of that is true, but... I'm just thinking, what an arm workout, 1,100 miles? Absolutely not. (laughs) It's believed it would have taken multiple weeks or months to make this journey. And I apparently have gotten way too attached to my own creature comforts because I am immediately saying absolutely not. No, thank you. My redheaded self is cringing thinking of that sunburn and not having access to fresh water. And because it's not like they're plugging in a mini fridge on board, They had to heavily rely on the ocean to provide them their meals. And while I love eating fish, I have gone fishing many a time growing up in Alaska. And sometimes you are just not lucky. And that would mean going without, even though you're burning through tons of calories, constantly paddling for this 1,100 miles. This all raises the question, how the heck could they carry enough supplies in a canoe to not only survive this journey, but then to basically start over on a new island. I thought it was really interesting when watching a History Channel documentary about Easter Island that once Polynesian explorers would find new land, they would send a small team back to report their findings. And then colonizing groups with men, women, children, and supplies would follow in canoes so they could set up life on the new land. And once they were able to set up like, okay, this island has what we need to survive. It has wood, it has water, it has all these things. Then they would report back and more people would follow to set up life. Because obviously, one group of men are not going to be able to produce a culture. They would die out real quickly without other women being there (laughs) to make some babies, okay? (laughs) Right. Well, and if you think about it, you can't send the whole village at once because what if everyone gets lost? Not only lost, but these are shark-infested waters. There's storms that come through and they're just paddling along in wooden canoes. No, that's my nightmare. Yeah, absolutely not. When the Polynesian people came here, they must have thought, wow, this is a little slice of heaven. This was a gift from the gods because this island had thick forests, amazing beaches, freshwater ponds, and very rich, fertile soil. The first people truly thrived here, and they were able to reach their numbers to almost 20,000 strong. That's a lot of people. On a very little island. But something happened because when the European explorers came to this island in 1722, it is reported that there was only about 2,000 of the Rapa Nui people left on the island. And what was once thickly forested areas were now just desolate lands. So how did this come to be? The monolithic statues called Moa are what Easter Island is probably best known for now. These large stone heads were thought to be just that, big giant stone heads, but it's now been discovered that they do have bodies attached, but they were protruding into the ground. So until they dug these up, they just thought, what are these giant heads doing all over the place? These statues are huge. I had no idea how big they were. The average height of a moa is about 13 feet. The average width around the base is around five and a half feet. 
But that is the average. These massive creations usually weigh around 13.8 tons. There is one moa that is over 33 feet tall. How the heck did they make these? And also, it's funny because Elise sent me a photo of these, which we'll post on our Instagram. And there were like 10 of them. I'm like, so there's 10 of them? And she's like, no, there's 900 of them. And I was shocked. Can you imagine what these European settlers coming to the island are like, uh, what is this? I would be so spooked because <laughs> they're huge and their facial expression, like they kind of look a little angry. They're not, you know, have these big smiles on. I mean, I know they're made of stone, but their face is quite stoic. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> the majority of the completed statues are found along the coast and face inland. Which initially makes me think, someone who has no real historical or archaeological knowledge whatsoever, that this was some sort of protection over the people. Perhaps a nod to ancestors that passed that they were still there watching over the people of Easter Island. And I was right for once. It's believed that they were just that and that the people believed the spirit of their ancestor would be held in the statue and look out over generations to come protecting them. That's a beautiful thought. I love that. Moa are carved from volcanic tuff, which is a weird term for solidified ash. This actually could be somewhat easily carved using just other harder rocks or stone tools. That helps explain how these were created. There was a large quarry of this volcanic tuff at the base of an old volcano who had blown up, you know, however many years before. And we know this is where the stones were pulled from because there are still hundreds of unfinished moai all over what was the quarry, but is now a lake bed. The human figures would be outlined in the rock wall first, then chipped away with stones until only the image was left. Once they would finish the statue, they would use pumice rock, yes, the stuff that we rub our toesies with, to help get them smooth. They would use that same type of rock to smooth out the surface. They would then be transported to their resting place on the island. Now, there's a couple of theories around this. It's believed that the backs of the moai were shaped like canoes so that gravity could help them slide down the hillside. Once at the base of the hill, it's believed, this is one theory, that they would use ropes to tie the moa face up to logs and push it along paved and leveled ground with this system of logs to get to its final resting place up to eight miles away. So you would have to think of how much timber would be needed and cut down in order to do this. So much. So if you, I'm trying to create a visual here and it's a little bit difficult to do when it's just audio, but if you imagine a wheelbarrow that rolls on wheels, we don't have wheels. So the logs act as the wheels. They might be rolling it. And then once the statue reaches the end of the logs, the log from the back is put to the front and then it continues rolling. And they did that for eight miles. Yeah, it would be. That would take forever. It would take forever. It would also use up a lot of resources because these moa were being made constantly. But some archaeologists believe that the slightly curved bases of the moa were intentionally done so they could be transported upright. This is a theory that I tend to go with because I'm thinking these things weigh tons. How dangerous would it be to lay it flat, first of all? and then potentially crush someone. But also, how does the weight of that not crush these logs? Yeah, and I feel like just getting them from standing upright to on their back or belly, like that has a high chance of snapping in half with all that pressure. Sure, not only the logs, but the people underneath it. And then yeah. you have to get that <laughs> thing upright again. That 
seems a little shaky. The second theory, I want you guys to picture how you would move a fridge. If you're trying to move a fridge on your own or with the help of someone else, you know, you pull the right side a little bit, then you pull the left side and you kind of shimmy the fridge into position. It takes forever, but it works, right? You're moving it like two inches Mm -hmm. to one side, two inches to the other until you finally get it into the spot you want. These archaeologists believe that the moai was moved in the same manner with large groups of the Rapa Nui tying ropes around the structure and basically working in tandem to literally walk the statue into its resting place. I keep thinking when I was researching this of that Friends episode and one of these people being like Ross yelling, pivot! (laughs) You know, when they're trying to move the couch up the stairs. That's all I could think of. Oh, that's like the best scene. Yeah, of these people like in their loincloths being like, pivot! Pivot! And slowly moving this giant structure down. I think because whenever you see how big they are and how far they traveled, it kind of puts every scenario into your head of how the heck did they get from point A to point B safely? So, yeah, I love the Friends reference. (laughs) I imagine there was a lot of accidents and blunders along the way, which may be why there are so many MOA seemingly abandoned face down on these pathways. So if they were carrying them upright, and it falls, it's like, I'm not going to try to get that thing vertical again. That's where it's going to lie. Let's build a new one. There's just a battlefield of moas just face down. There actually is. There's tons of them along these carved pathways. There's a lot of them that are found face down. So that kind of lends itself, at least in my opinion, to that theory that they were transported upright. But maybe they messed up. One group moved a little too quickly and the statue was toppled. And instead of trying to put it upright, they just gave up. Trial and error, I guess. It's believed around the 16th century that the people of Easter Island started a civil war of sorts. As the population grew, there was a demand for supplies to live off of. Overfishing of the area, timber being cut down and used for obvious things like shelter and fire, but possibly also to transport these huge statues, all of which is what could have led to the civil war. It's believed, like I said, that at its peak, there was nearly 20,000 people living on this tiny island. And so it makes sense that the resources, which were once abundant, had now died out due to overpopulation. What makes this a really crazy theory to think about is these people at this point had lived there for well over a thousand years, but started out as just a small group moving there to settle new land. So if there's a civil war, these people aren't just fighting against another tribe. They're fighting their own tribes. They're fighting their brothers, their sisters, their cousins. These are all family. And there's nowhere for them to run to. The island is so small. You can't avoid the war. With lack of wood, how are they going to make canoes to even try to escape? Now here's where it truly fits into a true crime podcast. Because in a particular cave known as Anakai Tangata, well, let's just say this translates in two ways. It's either the cave where people eat or the cave where people are eaten. Oh, which is chilling to say the least, but we have to kind of put our modern day thoughts aside and think that during the 16th century, when overpopulation had created an ecological disaster on the island and lack of food was a growing problem, is it too hard to conceive that some drastic measures were taken to feed the people? Like cannibalism? It is believed that cannibalism happened on the island during this time. There is small wooden statues carved around this time period that unlike the giant, broad, sturdy moa, they are clearly almost skeletal statues. 
Their backbones and ribs were carved protruding. The faces are sunken in and gaunt. And it's believed that these were a representation of what the people would look like at the time, starving and without the strength, manpower, or quite frankly, the energy to continue to produce these large stone statues to represent their ancestors. It's interesting, though, because in the midst of warfare and devastation, it seems the people did try to come together to create a solution. And their solution was what was known as the Birdman Cult. Every year, the leaders of the clans would come to a cliff called Orongo and compete against each other to decide who would have power for the upcoming year. They would know it was time to start this competition when the Sudi Tern, which is a seabird, would return from its migration to the island close to Easter Island to nest. This was a signal to all the tribe's people that the leaders would need to travel to Orongo with their best warriors to compete. We know a little bit about these competitions because European explorers who came to the island again in 1722 would actually witness these competitions. The best warriors from each clan would race down a thousand foot cliff. And I am not using the word cliff in any sort of exaggeration. I have watched a video. It is actually illegal to go to Easter Island and try to go up or down this cliffside because let's just say there's a high chance that you are going to reach a not so great fate if you were to try to attempt this. So this isn't like a downward sloping hill. No, this This is is a legit drop off cliff. Yeah. And very rocky and into, like I said, very treacherous shark infested waters below. Not for the faint of heart, obviously. They would then use reed floaters, think giant pool noodles, to help them swim in a race to the tiny little island where the sooty turn bird nested. The contestants then had to climb up onto the rocks, waves crashing against it, currents, all these things to find a sooty turn egg and swim back to the shore and climb back up the thousand foot cliff. And I'm guessing the egg could not be broken. Correct. It had to be intact. The first warrior to return with an egg, giving his chief the authority to rule the following year over the whole island. He became the Birdman. It kind of makes me think of the egg carrying races you would do at like summer camp and recess. I wonder if that's how it kind of started. Every tradition, every game starts somewhere that that would make sense. Except thank God we weren't carrying an egg through shark infested waters or up, you know, thousand foot steep cliffs. We're just like running 10 feet or something like that to our partner. (laughs) But this is truly like American gladiator of egg carrying contest. Mm -hmm. This is wild. (laughs) I was trying to figure out how in the world they would swim and keep the egg, and it seems like they would tie it into their headdress. So they'd keep their head above water on the way back, and that way they had use of their arms and legs. But again, that's just a theory, but it makes sense. All of these are the theories of historians and archaeologists, but it is not the only theory out there. There are many who believe that these amazing statues are not the work of the Polynesian settlers alone, but that they were given wisdom and tools by extraterrestrial beings to not only make but transport these large statues around the island. These theories point to the fact that there are platforms made that held many of these moa that are made from interlocking stone bricks, similar, actually identical, to those found in Peru, Egypt, Mexico, and other places. Now, Easter Island is one of the 12 places on the planet, including Egypt and Mexico, that have a very increased electromagnetic energy that we to this day can't really explain. 
All of these places have megalithic structures and sophisticated builds like the Moa. You know, the pyramids of Egypt and the structure of the walls of Cusco in Peru. How would these people construct almost exactly the same builds with bricks that interlocked with perfect mathematical accuracy when they are roughly 2,500 miles away from each other? And it's not like they can just call each other up on the telephone and say like, Hey, Annie, I just discovered this perfect way not to only carve multi-ton bricks, but then also move them and then align them with such accuracy that the structures will last thousands and thousands of years. Grab your pen and paper, girl. I got to tell you how to get this done. That's not happening. There's no way. And I sent Annie a couple pictures showing how similar these builds are. And it's uncanny. Truly, if there wasn't the names of the places, I would think it was all the same kind of structure. To Lisa's point, they're so similar. These theorists believe that the Birdman cult was actually these people's explanation of ancient aliens' arrival on their island and had nothing to do with the competitions held by the clans. The arrival of these aliens, or Birdman people, made them abandon their own religious and cultural practices and instead worship these beings that came from the sky. So what do you think? Are the Moa representations of alien interference with these Polynesian tribes? Or are they an incredibly beautiful and masterful statue created to remember their ancestors who passed before them? I'll let you decide. We would love to hear your theories on our Instagram page at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. But I think Annie will join me in saying Happy Easter to everyone that celebrates. I, not Annie, will be back next week with an all new episode. But as always, until then. <laughs>